0: Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is the Driven Minds Podcast, brought to you by Type 7. In this series, we talk to our cultural heroes who will regale us with stories as to how they turned their mental struggles into mental strengths. If you've watched a movie or TV show over the last, like, 40 or so years, chances are one of them was the brainchild of our guest today. Brian Grazer is an Oscar-winning movie and television producer who's been nominated for 43 Oscars and 198 Emmys. Nothing about that is casual. In our conversation, we talk about some of his work, like Apollo 13, A Beautiful Mind, which is my personal fave, American Gangster, Arrested Development, and Empire. Ever since Brian first arrived in Hollywood in 1974, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, He's been having weekly conversations with people, which he's called curiosity conversations. He's met with everyone from Jonas Salk, who invented the polio vaccine, to Barack Obama, to even Vladimir Putin, who flew him to Russia only to fly him right back when he found out that Brian did not intend to make a propaganda movie about him. Side note, I have really bad anxiety and really bad anticipatory anxiety. Not to mention, this is the first time I've ever podcasted in my life, and I know that I have one shot with Brian. But I tried to take comfort in reminding myself that I have been speaking since I was two, and that words would somehow come out of my mouth some way. Bottom line, if I sound nervous, it's because I absolutely was. Brian is a very busy man, so we spoke while he was enjoying a breakfast burrito at his home in Santa Monica, California, and I was freaking out in Berlin, Germany. So here it is, the first episode of the Driven Minds podcast, Breakfixed with Brian Grazer.
1: I'm eating while we're doing this. Is that cool? <laughs>
0: That is totally cool. That is, it's part of your. I feel like we see it on your your Instagram videos all the time. So you know, part of the whole
1: thing. Part of, part the, of the whole, whole shtick.
0: Part of the whole shtick. Thank you for being the guinea pig slash first guest on the Driven Minds podcast.
1: Driven Minds. Oh, okay, got it. Okay, there's a theme.
0: There's a there's a theme here and. One of the many reasons I'm so excited to have you on the show is because I've always loved your endless energy. And I'm sure a lot of this energy is fueled by your curiosity about the world and especially about other people. And you've been religiously having these weekly curiosity conversations over the last 40 years. So I'm wondering, what do you do during a global pandemic when you're more or less stuck at home and meeting people is a health risk? How and where are you channeling this energy?
1: I mean, I definitely find application. Uh, I do Zooms with people. I did Zooms with a 2019 Nobel Prize-winning physicist who, who redesigned the inten- intention of the T cell to kill, to attack cancer. But I do f- fun things all the time. I, I mean, those are fun. I mean, learning is fun. And I'm endlessly getting up uh, very early get up at five o'clock and even though last night i got out you know i went to my friend's house um, jimmy Iveens, who's you know super star music person you know and it's the that'd be the most understated way of presenting it but we do vinyl night we listen to vinyls and so i learn a lot on vinyl night really learn a lot on vinyl night. it's like seven guys Uh, but I learn all the stories behind the music and why music sounds the way it does. Um, As much as I love music, I I haven't granulated how all those details fall into place. So that's what I do. I do a bunch of stuff. I'm constantly disrupting my comfort zone, which gives me the most amount of pleasure.
0: What was one of the vinyls that was on rotation last night?
1: We always have at least one track of Marvin Gaye but outside of that what blew up was Jimi hendrix purple haze foxy lady um but it's just a different experience with it when you're in a room not only is it a vinyl but a room that has been tested for 20 years and the acoustics are so badass so that was really exciting really really exciting
0: Do you feel people can open up to you in the same way they do in real life as they do on Zoom? Or do you feel like there's some sort of missing link, right? Because the weird thing about Zoom is you can only really connect with people if you're looking at this green light. So you're not really looking at each other in the eye, right? Like there's some sort of difference.
1: I actually think you are looking at them in the eye. I think you can do it but it's harder to remember the experience because it's not grounded in an experience. It's really just a uh, surgical information, but we're looking at, I'm looking at you and I'm feeling connected to you, but to have a better memory and a more comprehensive experience would be better if I would see, you know, be very more attentive to your physiognomy, uh, your body language, um, things that make, that reveal the real information, quite frankly.
0: I want to backtrack a bit to the beginning of the curious life of Brian Grazer. Okay, (laughs) You've been so open about how some of your most trying and even at times traumatic experiences in your youth have shaped your career. For instance, you've said that your show, Friday Night Lights, was motivated by you getting cut from your high school football team, and you, you struggled reading due to dyslexia, and you got D's and F's in school. But despite all of these setbacks, it's so inspiring to me that rather than internalizing these incidents and letting them affect your sense of self-worth, you use these rejections and experiences in your youth to almost fuel you, Mm -hmm. which is really hard to do. I mean, I'm still dealing with trauma that went down in computer science class when I was in like the fifth grade. That's funny. (laughs) Can you talk about how you reframed these negative experiences and made them work in your favor?
1: Well in, in the case of the high school football and being cut in front of 300 other football players um, it was really traumatizing because it, there was a a moment when I was with those guys maybe it was 250 you know football football players of Chatsworth High there was a moment I was a, a human being and then there became a moment where I fell off the cliff and I was no longer a human being I got cut in front of the 250 other kids and it's public and it's um, there's just so much shame attached to it Uh, and it feels bad and it is traumatizing but I I am able to reframe it and the way I would do it is I'd say well how would I put that those moments into slow motion what happened and then I came to the conclusion that I just told you that I just finished hell week like everybody else Hell Week's hard. I felt good about myself. And then, you know, just almost like a cinematic experience, it went very granularly until it became real slow motion, like martial arts. And I got cut and what that felt like and what it looked like and just all the details of those five seconds. Then I take those five seconds and I box that up into being specific about that feeling. And then that feeling becomes a deep memory that I can refer to when I'm building a story. Because it's pretty simple. There beyond it, it's about, I mean, we all want to feel a sense of equality. We're all working towards, you know, a greater sense of unity within humanity. And so this was outside the box of that, of that uh, feeling. And so it's powerful in the world of storytelling. And everything is a story. I mean, as you know, I make movies and television shows and documentaries. But, you know, computer companies, the founders have a story. The reason they're better or worse is because of the origin story. So I just reframed things. I once uh, had a knee surgery. It was incredibly painful, this surgery. In the medieval days of re- replacing your ACL, it was so painful. And then there was this moment, I thought, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the apex of the, of the pain, I thought, wow, this really is painful. But what if I got hit by a car? What about people that get hit by cars? What about people that get hit by cars and survive but all of their internal organs are damaged or ruptured that's real pain so i put my pain in perspective to other you know populations people
0: yeah i think it's so important to practice gratitude but there's also a fine line between downplaying your feelings and invalidating them you know what i mean
1: yeah but no i felt relief It was, it was like an existential experience that all of a sudden, well, it's the same thing that um, what you do is you you're able to reframe the experience and you put it in another narrative. And that's of course how people, people that survive torture and torture is most effective when it's unpredictable, which makes it worse. What they do often, and this woman, her name is Veronica DeNegre, was tortured for 18 months. She had to live in another reality, an alternate reality. So that that other reality is a story that is driving their experience as opposed to the real-time experience. Because the real-time experience is too excruciating. So they create an experience. It's like dreaming. But it's living a story of that dream every second. And so that's a version of what I did to cope with the pain. Reframed it and lived that story. I started to imagine the person that got hit by a car. I started to imagine they were in the crosswalk and it was not fair. I mean, I really did. I created an entire story about it.
0: Brian, I've always admired how you've been so public about your experiences with anxiety. And seriously, kudos for owning it. We need more of your kind on earth. Oh, thanks. Second, while you've said that you've had anxiety in the past, is this something that you still deal with? And what does it look like today?
1: Mm, you wouldn't notice it. Because um, it, it's just internal. It's just a an internal truth, you know, that, um, I mean, I want to be smart everywhere I go. And it doesn't mean I'll always be smart, even at my highest level. But... To me, smartness is access accessing your f- inner truth because it's that filter that is valuable, and that filter is all the you know empirical empirical information that is inputted by you, and how that gets in, inputted in assimilated, how it feels to you about feeling, and that's the most valuable thing. People think that you know writers that come in, they think, oh, I'm gonna be really smart and say all this smart stuff I read or prognosticate like, Oh, this is going to be the new trend. That's useless to me because that's not sustainable. What's sustainable is your truth, your voice. That's what differentiates you from somebody else that's sitting right next to you. So basically I learned that that was the most valuable thing is to be informed, uh, educate myself to my best ability and, um, be present <laughs> and that that would be valuable. I do do some tricks. I, I still do these tricks today of in any party because I've been doing this for so long, any party or important dinner, I always have three subjects that will, that I could, uh, I could say, Oh, did you know that there's this trend in North Carolina of the following thing or, I always, always have my little three notes. It's just a built-in discipline. Because I, I don't want someone to say to me, which has happened, hey, what's going on? And have no answer. Or the, I want something fresh. So, so I do do that, I do that kind of preparation. In public speaking, I, I'm, I mean, you wouldn't guess, but I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm very unafraid in public speaking. What causes me the most anxiety in any kind of public speaking situation is accepting awards. Uh, Giving awards is okay. Talking about subjects are better. Uh, Talking about subjects and experiences are better. Uh, But accepting awards, is that involves a different type of etiquette. And I want to be true to myself, but I also want to conform to the etiquette of acceptance.
0: What was your most nerve-wracking award experience?
1: The Oscars, when I won an Oscar for A Beautiful Mind, I never thought that I'd be that nervous. Because I've won other awards and I've performed, but I think because I was so spooked by not winning on Apollo 13 which was a few years uh, that preceded it. And every person said, you're going to win. And it didn't, you know, I went to get the award in fact, and they said, Braveheart. And so I I had to turn back and it was so embarrassing. And, but I got over I got over the embarrassment, took about a year. And, but I just, I just, uh, I think I know why this made me uncomfortable, a beautiful mind. It made me uncomfortable because I thought I wasn't going to win. I thought, I definitely felt like we deserved to win, but I thought maybe some fluke like on Apollo 13 uh, will prevent that. Then I don't like reading, you know? I don't like, and I had to read a bunch of names. I didn't want to forget people. I didn't want to rely upon my memory to say uh, Hans all the names. I just couldn't. And so I don't like reading. It's fake to me. But I had this great moment when I was really nervous standing up there. I did really well by thanking Russell Crowe because that was really available to me, that truth. But all of these female star actresses were sitting in the front row that I all knew separately, like Cameron Diaz and Julia Roberts and uh, uh, er just every uh, Nicole Kidman who I'd made a movie with, and they're all staring at me. And they mouthed the words, you can do it. (laughs) So That was kind of charming.
0: What a front line of support there. I love that those are the faces that would calm you. Whereas, I mean, I would freak out if I was in front of those people. But I want to visit uh, Beautiful Mind for a bit. Because you made this movie in 2001. So that was like 20 years ago. And you said that you made it in part to destigmatize mental disability. But the early aughts weren't the wokest of times, shall we say. So I'm curious, why was destigmatizing mental health even on your radar at the time?
1: Well, you know, originally, because my oldest kid, I'd learned, we we learned it was very hard to, in, that, in those days, to sort of figure out or diagnose uh, somebody's uh, any type of mental disability. Uh, and so there wasn't even the term Asperger's was like a brand new term. So I saw him, Riley, coping with Asperger's and he's so enthusiastic. So he did well, you know, he, he was always attentive in school, always there, very enthusiastic. And I saw moments where kids tricked him and it was, that was heartbreaking. Because I thought, wow, it's difficult enough for him to just cope with this disability now people are going to stigmatize him and make him feel bad about the disability or cause him to be more isolated and i and i it just woke me up to realize that that's what's happening to riley and that's what happens to so many people with even much more serious disabilities and then i just started to be really present and just look at people with thoroughness you know watching the person that's walking kind of odd in a park and then talks to a garbage can all of a sudden. And you go, let's not avoid that person. That person is probably bipolar, or more likely to be schizophrenic. And so I just thought, um, you know, uh, there's these people all over the country. Uh, California's more progressive, so a little luckier, but there's so many parts of the country that have no, very little sympathy or interest or empathy. Um, And for these kinds of things. And I wanted to bring it to public attention.
0: And I feel there's a theme, though, in general that runs throughout your films and TV shows of protagonists whose mental differences place them as the hero of the story. I mean, as you said in Beautiful Mind, uh, Russell Crowe plays John Nash, who is schizophrenia, and Eminem has performance anxiety and chokes on stage in a rap battle in Eight Mile... And I mean, even in Arrested Development, there are references to George Michael having OCD and Buster and yeah. his panic attacks. I'm so curious. Like, why do you choose to focus on characters with mental struggles? And how do you approach that?
1: Um, because I think it's, and it's not fully, there are they're emotional struggles too. There, um, well, I relate to it because I, I had, two parents that were really nice people, but my dad just wasn't ready to be a dad, you know? So we didn't, so, and it's these imperceptible things that cause tremendous uh, trauma upon you. Like I would have never thought, because my dad, we didn't do anything together ever. I don't think he ever touched me. You just think, well, I got over all that stuff, but you don't really get over all that stuff. It, it, um, It happened. There was no like hitting or any of that kind of stuff. It just, um, I'm interested in people that, um, have a noble pursuit that are on the, on the path of a noble pursuit, but their impediment are, is in some way themselves an injury that they have to overcome. And I think it's quite common, quite frankly. And, um, I want to uh, address it and do it through entertainment or smart entertainment, hopefully.
0: There's a saying that the only walls that stand before us, that hinder us, are the ones that we build ourselves. What do you think your biggest wall was that you built and how did you get over it?
1: Well, I had a real problem, which is I couldn't read. so And that just produced a lot of... uh, problems you know like i, I couldn't get good grades so i'm always getting f's and then i had this jewish grandmother that's saying oh you're the genius you're going all the way and i'd say there's like no evidence that that's going to happen and so she'd say you are think big be big you know she had all of those isms and um so that was helpful it's good to have one at least one person that's consistently supportive of you so i so i had that that was like a real thing that caused a bunch of uh you know, issues. I mean, that made it harder to do public speaking because public speaking is built on having information to speak about. And often all these things access on reading. Now there's so many different outlets. There's podcasts. There's there's podcasts. There's books on tape. There's Audible. There's uh, Blinkist. I don't know if you know what Blinkist is pretty great. You know, it's the founders are in Germany. You know that. I don't know if you know that. They're German kids. And I connect with them all the time because I love Blinkist and I like them. So the idea, once you get past the threshold of those, of the practical problems of say dyslexia and all that, which I did, um, then you're kind of, you are dealing, you're sort of at war with yourself. And that's accesses on self-worth? Do you think you're worthy? And I think you have to, I, well, a friend of mine, an older man that partners with Jerry Seinfeld said, I knew you before Night Shift. And, and then, then you'd got this one movie made and then you got nominated for an Oscar for your second movie and then you won an Oscar and then you made, you know, everything went really well. But I bet you've never looked in the mirror and kissed the mirror. And I thought, wow, that's, powerful. And of course I hadn't either in truth or in, in, you know, as a concept. So you have to love yourself. And that, that's a, that is a problem for a lot of people loving themselves, feeling they're worthy. I mean, even after I'd been gigantically successful in movies, I would see got people Go out to the podium on a you know uh, um, where I'd be going on the podium as well, and they don't they they they're so liberated by time they talk twenty straight minutes, whereas me and I'm getting the final award of the night, I'm feeling like um, well I don't want to go too quickly I'm going to rush through this I just didn't never you know I didn't have a sense of worthiness in the way that certain people do, now sometimes it's great to have a sense of worth you know, worthiness where you do stuff like that, but it's probably optimal if you have that and you also have accomplished something.
0: So have you kissed the mirror, Brian?
1: I have. I've kissed the mirror. I literally did.
0: Had that feel? Self-congratulatory, I hope. Well-deserved.
1: <laughs> it did. <laughs> Validating. Good. I've done it more than once.
0: Yeah. When was the last time?
1: It was within, it was like within four months because the guy, his name is George Shapiro. He sent me a card, because I want I wanted to see one of his uh, television shows. He sends the, the television show, and then he says, don't forget to kiss the mirror, and I thought, and I just did. I kept the card, I took a picture of it, in case I lose the card. I think it's just a great idea.
0: I want to talk about your day-to-day, because you work in an incredibly high-pressure business, I mean, making a movie means juggling a million moving parts, and you've probably spent, what, well over half of your life in production or on set. Yeah, definitely. Is there something specific that just drives you to the absolute edge?
1: Unfairness. Inequity makes me crazy. Um, so that's demonstrated a lot of different ways, but on making a movie or TV show... Sometimes there are are people that are, you know, either the head writer on a TV show or the director on the movie, you know, people that are in control during the fragile time of making the perishable time of making this product. They, um, they kill the golden goose. They get greedy and they get way ahead of themselves and they, and they want more out of the thing that they're, doing like the show. So they start doing a bunch of guest stars or I can get this star. When really the reason people liked it is it had no guest stars. They liked the people that were in the show or in the case of a a movie, it's like killing the golden goose would be, would be like, oh, I decided I'm gonna do all these special effects or let's go to this crazy location when it's not even central to the narrative. They just get ahead of, they get, they see that someone else did that and and then they they're not doing the they're not on the core of why they're there they're living in someone else's narrative which causes them to dilute the purity of what they're doing
0: so it's like adding all of these bells and whistles for absolutely no narrative driven reason
1: yeah cuz all you're really trying to do with a story is not all. You're trying to create an, you know, an architecture or a script of, that leads you to memorable emotional points that get ignited. If, there, if you don't have any memorable, you know, memorable moments, moments that become emotional, it, it's pretty hard to be effective.
0: Speaking of emotional points, on your Instagram bio, it says that you're in the feelings business. What does the feelings business mean to you?
1: It means that everything that matters to my experience in life is computes itself as a, it's it's either a feeling or it isn't. And there's feelings that are good and rational and there's feelings that are good and irrational. And then there's feelings that are bad or neutral or you feel vacant or lost. Everything is kind of a, to me is a, that's what we are as human beings. That's what I, am. I'd rather just say it that way because I, I can't speak for the world, but I think that's what we are. When you're dehumanized, it's makes you feel that. And then you, of course, you realize why you're being de- dehumanized or why a population is being dehumanized. And, um, all sort of axis on stuff like that to me. Feelings.
0: Was there a movie that you can think of or a television show that was particularly emotional to produce?
1: I loved the first season of Empire. That was emotional. Because that was all about inequity, unfairness, what it felt like to grow up and be gay. And then Cookie, of course, Taraji, she gets screwed and has to go to prison on something that's at least her equal idea, And she's getting screwed and has to do everything to demand equality. And I think that was cool. That was emotional to me. And she was exceptional.
0: I'm curious about your meeting with Prince. And if I did not ask you, about this, my producer would probably quit my show and I really need him right now. Uh, you rated his eye contact a seven out of 10 and that is a three point deduction, Brian. Really? What is up with this three point shade?
1: That's so funny. I see it more differently. I think it's an achievement to get seven. Prince would have been a 10. I mean, he could, could easily be a 10, but I was too nervous. Like I was just trying to keep this conversational alive. I'm thinking, oh my God. So I had my daughter, Sage, went to this club called Butter in New York and it was just like 200 people there. And I'm realizing there's princes at the door meeting people, just looking at them. And he chose to speak to me. I thought, first of all, he knew who I was, but I didn't know he knew who I was. And so just the fact that he knew who I was and acknowledged it was, he's Prince. I mean, he's so badass. He's amazing. And so I just kept up this conversation, like, because I wanted my daughter to, like, be in a conversation with Prince. I mean, that just would blow her mind. And and fortunately, he singled me out because I was making the movie The Da Vinci Code, and that's, you know, it's about religion. It challenges faith. It challenges God. It's about those things. And he's very focused on faith. And so I didn't realize that. And so he was really interested in how we got this perspective on Da Vinci Code.
0: And speaking of your daughter, she just launched a app called Frame that connects people to therapists. And, I mean, clearly mental health is on the Grazer radar. Did you raise your kids having conversations about mental health or was this just something Mm. that she – wandered into on her
1: own? That's a really good question. No, I didn't. I I didn't. It wasn't really on my mind that way, other than the Riley part of it. Um, No, she just went into it. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but she went to NYU and she went to Tisch at NYU, originally hoping to be either a cinematographer or photographer. And then she got out of Tisch. She did very well. And even by doing well and grinding and stuff like that, she realized she was, she was, it was a cattle call even for that, that she became that photographers were like actresses or something (laughs) that you had to do interviews and people, they'd be late and you're kind of a little bit abused. And so she didn't quite get that that was the system, nor did I for that matter. Anyway, she just said, I don't want to do that. That's not how I want. I don't want to live my life where I'm a victim or subject to other people picking me. (laughs) I want to pick, and so I'm probably like you for that matter. And um, where you take control over your life, and you became the act, you become the active agent of your life. And so she decided she wanted to be a therapist. She was always good at getting the inner game. I'm always turned on by people that get the inner game, like what's really being said. Um, and I have another kid. Her, well, I have four kids, but I've her younger brother is sort of that he always knows what's really happening. He gets the inner game. And so by getting the inner game, it was sort of within the purview of her level of interest. So that's what got her into being a therapist. And now this, this startup called Frame, which is millennial for millennial therapy.
0: Brian, but you've also always gotten the inner game, right? Because, I mean, you spent seven years... Pitching Splash, which was one of your first movies. I think I must have made my parents play that movie every Friday night for a year, and I'm not exaggerating. I'm sure this period is permanently lodged into their memory as the moment they discovered that Fridays no longer belong to them.
1: That's hilarious.
0: Yeah, and for our listeners who haven't watched it, it starts Tom Hanks in his first big movie where he falls in love with a mermaid, and it was an epic hit. But but before you got the green light, you spent seven years pitching it to studios and every single one of them yeah. told, you no. Repeatedly. and normally yeah. repeatedly and normally someone in your position would just come up with a different idea, but you didn't, you kept pitching until someone said yes. And you weren't even Brian Grazer at the time. There was no <laughs> empirical evidence that but, someone was going to say yes. True. So what, what gave you the chutzpah to continue <laughs> after seven years of rejection?
1: Um, I don't know. I got to the place where I thought when people say no to me, it's just first of all, they don't know because how can anyone know? It's so subjective whether a story... I mean, people put E.T. in turnaround. You know, after Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws, Steven Spielberg's E.T. was dinged out of Columbia Pictures. So there's a lot of evidence, by the way, the points that nobody knows. So... Even though everybody's saying so so that that's that sort of lives there, and then the other part of it is um I always thought no was a temporary point of view i don't I don't think it's a permanent I think it's just temporary i'll change their mind or i'll change someone else's mind and make them look bad
0: Why did you start believing that
1: Because I had so many nos in elementary school and I it defeated it, you know um, I ended up being able to learn to read and then to be quite exceptional in reading. And then um, I just defeated a lot of my issues by will, I guess. Will and, uh, you know, some of it's luck, of course. But um, I'm not not bothered by people saying no. I don't like, what I really don't like to do is say no to somebody else. I really don't like saying no. I think I'm, I don't mean this as a compliment towards myself. I think I'm extremely empathetic. And that's what sort of helped me um, be successful in a business that you have to sell your stories. Because when I go pitch a story, I don't really think about my pitch. I kind of know my pitch. I think about how it's going to affect the people in the room. Is anyone in the room going to get a sentence out of it that's going to make them look good to their boss? So my mind is already so fully transported into other people's psyche that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not even hearing no. I'm not even hearing. In fact, the joke is, is like when Ron and I would go to meetings, Every meeting, I'd go like that. Dude loved the movie; like he's dying to do it. And he'd go, "No, I think they're going to say no." I go, "They're not going to say no," and then they did.
0: (laughs) Does being told no get easier over time?
1: Yes, it gets easier. I think even in this modern our modern times that people, you know, everyone has to be kind of entrepreneurial. They have to hustle. Hustle was kind of a, was a word that was, you know, a negative word 20, 30 years ago. But now hustle is essential. If you don't hustle, you're going nowhere, in my opinion. So hustle is hustle is trying things that matter, being thoughtful under your tries and knowing that likely people are going to say no or no one will get it. And then you have to continue to be, those no's have to, everything that happens in that journey has to infirm, affirm your commitment to this, uh, this, the vision. And if it doesn't, then you learn that it doesn't and then you just stop, but not because someone made you stop.
0: I feel like, you know, even the dynamics of the film industry have changed just massively since since you started do you feel that you would have been as that you would have hit the ground running in the way that you would have that you did in the 70s today
1: yeah i would have i would have hit the ground running like that i wouldn't have been as i might not have been as motivated um because the win is a different kind of win today at when i started a win would be uh, in the, it's more like the '80s. Um, the a win would be, wow! If it works, the thing, my story works. It's going to affect the way people think and talk and behave. Now there's so much content, and it's distributed through pi- and, and anonymous pipes. You know, like, uh, I mean, not fully anonymous. That's sort of uh, unfair. But basically, um, no. But in the day, you would, you know, was more reliant upon other factors to blow up in the in the you know in our culture now there's an endless amount of of distractions but it still hap- can happen you can still achieve that explosive moment that is the romantic moment that you're hoping to have hap- happen in our culture just harder
0: i mean the distractions are also really significant and i'm curious about the ways that you manage just a, your every day distractions. I mean, you talked about that you do transcendental meditation, but you said that you got into meditation because you were stuck in cycles and you couldn't get out of them. Yeah, And I was wondering if you could talk more about the cycles that you were in and trying to get out of.
1: They're kind of the cycles that everybody has when they want something and they obsess over it and they're constantly living in a loop. You know, if you break up, somebody breaks up with you on a date, you know, your boyfriend breaks up, you might... All of a sudden you go, what did I do wrong? Do I I regret this? Should I have done it differently? Does it matter? It becomes this constant loop. Um, If it's a project you're trying to do, if it's your podcast that you're working on, whatever that thing is, when things don't go well, you create a a loop and you just want to stop the loop quickly so you can be productive.
0: And how did meditation help?
1: Um, it takes you well. Meditation has proved that it does take you out of those loops, because you're supposed to think of nothing. You're supposed to be nothing.
0: Do you practice every day?
1: No, not every day. But I did right before this. Me I, I sometimes, I often do it right in my sauna. Okay. So I worked out, went to right my went to the sauna thing, not sauna thing into the sauna, meditate in there, jumped out showered, sw- well, actually swam my pool, then showered, then here we are. Here we are. So I do do it. Yeah, it's a refreshing palate cleanser.
0: And there are other methods that you have as well to, uh, to deal with stress. And I know one of them has to do with your wrist and a rubber band. And I was wondering if you could tell us your secret.
1: Well, it's a reminder. So I keep a very thick, tight rubber band on my wrist. If I'm, if I'm super stressed out, and obsessing and I pull the rubber band out and I snap it as hard as I can. And it just reminds me, like, get out of this. S- stop. Basically the way you get out of things is it's a cognitive therapy trick. You just you have to say, stop, discontinue thought about it. Don't try to solve it anymore, but that's hard.
0: Where'd you get that from?
1: I was taught this by an expert in the state department that t- t- uh, his name is Richard, that, that taught soldiers, Navy SEALs, berets, how to survive torture. So there's all types of torture. I saw one a soldier was buried alive for two weeks. How did he survive that? So when Jim Carrey was going to quit the movie um, How the Grinch Sold Christmas, because he was he was suffocating in prosthetics, you know, to make the, so all of his pores were sealed and they'd take six hours to do it. And he just, it was torturous. So I had this guy fly in from Virginia to meet with Jim over the weekend. And Jim said, I'll stay on, I won't quit. And that's the short version of that story. Yeah. Cause I I could tell he was being, it was torturous to him. It was like being captured and tortured. And he, he was wanting to give the money back plus interest and, He did, you know, and it just, I didn't want him to quit. So this guy uh, gave him devices and that was one of them.
0: So this guy essentially saved the Grinch stole Christmas. Saved the Grinch. (laughs) One final question for you. What drives you?
1: Curiosity. Wanting to know why, how and why things are. Why they exist? Why they matter? Why they don't matter? Just, I'm just genuinely interested in the how, whys, and where's. It's mostly why.
0: That, my friends, was Brian Grazer. Thank you for joining us for breakfast. That's right. I can't say breakfast. Breakfast. <laughs> anyway, I'm Gigi Sagansky. You can follow me at Gillian Zaganski. That is my Polish Jewish Russian last name. You can always DM me with comments and questions. And remember to be kind, take a break from your screen today, and talk to each other. Until next time.